Good morning again. It is great to see you, and it's great to have some people show up on a, a weather day like today, when uh, you never know uh, when the next band of rain is going to come and, and uh, keep you from coming to church. So I'm glad that you got out and you didn't let that, that stop you. Uh, I don't know if you're tired of rain yet or not, uh, but it's been a rainy summer, and it, it hasn't been the best summer for convertibles or Jeep lovers like me who like to ride with the, the top down. Uh, with rainstorms pop, popping up uh, unpredictably uh, all summer, I mean, even into the, the spring and into the summer, we've had those kinds of days when uh, I, I have two or three uh, weather apps and I, I check them religiously uh, because I'm, I'm a nerd, first of all. Uh, but second, uh, I don't like to be surprised. And third, I'm a nerd. So thank you. So those are uh, reasons that I want to uh, keep up with the weather, but also because I own a Jeep and I want to take the top off of it. And uh, as much as I would love to show off my Jeep tricks, like plugs in the, uh, the floor of the Jeep, you know, so if you do get rained on, or if you fill up with water, you just pull the plugs out. I bet you don't have that in your car, do you? I have them in my Jeep. And you can pull those plugs out and let the water out so that you don't have to uh, drive around with all that water. But uh, I, I would rather stay dry. And uh, that's why I check these apps. But there's also the challenge of getting the hard top off of my Jeep by myself. When I had a, a Jeep with a soft top, it was just a real quick and easy thing where I could uh, unfasten a few things and push it back, and it really wasn't any trouble. I could do it all by myself, but the hard top is too heavy. It's too heavy for me to remove myself, and I have tried numerous times, and that's never a good idea. It's hard enough, really, with two people. And when Jack was at home, I could get him to come and help. Uh, he didn't always want to do that, but I could, you know, can, cajole him to, to uh, get off the couch and to, to come out and to help me. But he's gone this summer, and Jenny just doesn't seem to see the importance of removing a perfectly good top from a vehicle. Uh, and then she won't ride in it after I do because it'll mess up her hair. Well, you, you know the story. But I, I don't like asking anyone for help. And, uh, and I, I try not to ask my neighbors for anything. I love my neighbors, and I have a bunch of neighbors, but I, I just, uh, I don't want them coming and asking me for stuff. <laughs> so I'm not going to go ask them for stuff, right? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, and I, I don't want them to run when they see me coming to say, oh, you know, he wants to get help with that stupid Jeep thing again. <laughs> but the other day was one of those perfect Jeep days. One that was made for Jeeps. And if you're a Jeep owner, if you've ever been a Jeep owner, if you want to be a Jeep owner, you know what I'm talking about. Blue sky and a cool breeze in the morning. Uh, that song, Summer Breeze, really should go with, with riding around uh, with the top off like that. Uh, and you know that that kind of a morning will lead to a starry night where you can drive and just see the sky and go out in the country somewhere and take a look at all of the stars and hear the sounds of the cicadas all right there as you drive. It's the Jeep life. By the way, there's a wave that goes with it too. There's a, there's a Jeep wave. No, I'm not going to go into that. That's too complicated. But 
I couldn't wait to get out in that day on this perfect Jeep day, but soon realized there wasn't any way for me to do it by myself. I couldn't really live that life without someone to help me, without a neighbor. And so I had to go and find a neighbor, someone, some poor soul who happened to be out in his yard, working in his yard. I was able to go and ask him to come over and to help me. I haven't seen that guy ever outside again since then. He works just in the backyard, apparently. But I needed a neighbor. The story that Jesus tells in our Gospel text this morning comes to that same conclusion. That no one can truly live the life that they want to live and the life that God has called them to live without a neighbor. You just can't do it. And that's what the lawyer who was asking Jesus questions needed to hear. If you closed your Bible, go ahead and open it back up to Luke chapter 10, to this story that we have heard read this morning. And we've also heard it in the children's sermon, and maybe you heard it in Sunday school, or maybe you have seen some things about it in social media. Everybody's talking about this story right now. Someone said that this story is trolling the president. And as you hear the story, you might begin to think about, hmm, maybe that's so. Maybe it it has something to do with things that are going on in our world today. But this was a story that was told to a lawyer. And I don't know if the lawyer charged him by the hour, but probably wanted to. But that's what the lawyer was asking uh, Jesus questions about. He needed to hear this. This lawyer was proud of his religious accomplishments, doing his best to follow the law. I mean, one of those that had check boxes, right? I did this today. I did this today. I, I prayed this prayer. I, you know, I helped this person. I gave this offering. I've done all these things. I've been checking these boxes. Doing his best to love God and to love neighbor. The Shema that he knew from Deuteronomy. This, this word that he knew and said every day. This, this uh, calling and this command for him to love God and to love his neighbor. And so he was doing all these things the best that he could, so he thought. Jesus would mess with his thinking. Don't you love it when Jesus messes with your thinking? If you don't think Jesus has messed with your thinking, you're not listening to Jesus enough, right? You're not reading Scripture enough. You're not paying attention because Jesus has a way of messing with our thinking, of challenging us. And this is what he was doing with the lawyer. He challenged his understanding of love for God as well as his definition for neighbor. I mean, this guy thought he had it down. He thought he was doing it. And the story Jesus tells him is the one that we commonly refer to as the good Samaritan, which begs the question, are there some bad Samaritans, right? It's kind of a a strange, misplaced title of this parable. Jesus didn't title it that. That's just how we refer to it. But it's a story about a Samaritan who indeed was good. And he did something good. And that's why we think of him in this way. We know the story well, having heard it in church or school or in some cultural reference. We know it's about a man who, unlike other passers-by that day, he stops to help a man who has been beaten, who has been robbed and left to die in the street. I think we have a graphic uh, on the screen that is uh, kind of a, a... Uh, one back um, that was uh, 
It looks like one that was created in Sunday school, and the author's name is, I think it's Peterson. But you can kind of see uh, these four different panels uh, of what takes place, and you see the man that is lying there, you see the two passers-by, and you see the Samaritan or this man who comes in to help uh, and then takes him to get the care that he needs. And I, I like things like this. It's like a flannel graph. It helps me understand uh, a whole lot better. But, but this man has been beaten, robbed, and he has left to die in the street. And he, uh, a Samaritan, is the hero of the story. And this was scandalous for them to hear in, in their context because the people Jesus was telling, or the man, this, uh, the man that Jesus was telling this story to and the other people who were hearing this and the people who would later hear this despised Samaritans. They saw them not only as traitors, but as impure and called them all kinds of names and had nothing at all to do with them. They were certainly not neighbors. And so here is Jesus messing with their thinking and putting Him as the hero of the story. He's the one that saves the day. Our takeaway from this is that we are to be that man for people in need of help, right? That we're to be a good Samaritan. We even have a law that if you pass somebody... Uh, you see a wreck and you pass by, you see that they're in need, uh, you know, you pull over and you help them and you're not going to be sued or get into trouble if you don't save that. I mean, you're, you're actively trying to help that person out and uh, if something happens in the midst of that, uh, you're not going to be held accountable for that because you're doing your best to be a what? A good Samaritan. You're trying to do the right thing. And that's a great lesson for us to hear. But what if there's more to the story than that? What if there's more of a takeaway for you and for me as we go home today than just knowing we're to be a good person? You already know that, don't you? That's what your mama told you, right? Be a good person. Get out there and do something good for somebody. If you see somebody who needs help, help them. Amen. And that's what we're to do. But I think there's more to it than that. Another take on this Story, one that is popularized by N.T. Wright, who is a New Testament scholar, a former bishop of Durham. He digs a little bit deeper into the story by placing it in the context within which Jesus was telling it. Jesus is speaking to a man who is in his own religion, right? To, to a, a brother, a fellow um, uh, person right there in his own group. One who is a specialist in the law of God for Israel. He is also telling the story surrounded by people who were living in captivity, feeling the weight of an existential threat from Rome. I mean, they knew that Rome could wipe them out at any time. They knew that if they continued to stir up things, and, and, and just even on a whim, that Roman soldiers could come in and just take them away, and they would disappear, or they would appear maybe on a cross somewhere, but they would be wiped out, and they knew that they, as a nation, could utterly be destroyed. Jesus knew that there were some among them who wanted to overthrow Rome's captivity, and to do so with violence. He knew there were people in that crowd who were parts of groups and uh, people in society who were uh, coming up with a plan, a very violent plan, and they were looking for someone who could make it all happen. And some of those people even thought that that special someone was Jesus. He's going to be our Messiah. He's going to help us do this. And so we're going to follow Him. He knew that there were people 
in the crowd, just like that. He also knew that some in the crowds that heard him teach were convinced that God was punishing them for their sins. That the whole reason Israel was in captivity was because of their sin and their impurity. Especially the impurity of the unclean and the foreigners in their midst. They pointed, and and people do this, nations still do this, they point to the foreigner and say, that right there is our problem. And so everybody in their tribalism says, okay, yeah, let's get rid of those people, those foreigners, because they are bringing God's wrath upon us. Or they're bringing down our economy. Or they're going to get us into big trouble. And we point to them. That's what they did. Hence the indifference to and disdain for foreigners and the threat their impurity posed to their nation. This is why we find in Scripture, Scripture after Scripture, in one, in one sermon I went through pretty much all of the references to foreigners uh, from Genesis all the way uh, through the New Testament, just pointing out what God thinks about the, the strangers, the aliens, the foreigners. And God's commandment to, to Israel to take care of them. To love them as neighbors. With this kind of thinking, and these kind of thinkers in the crowd, Jesus sharpens the point of His story to be about the neighbor. And that's what the lawyer wants to hear from Jesus. So that he could be justified. Did you see that in there? He wants to be justified. Or he justifies himself. Saying, well, I know there's a, you know, this about loving God and loving neighbor. And I've done that. I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? I mean, I've loved my neighbor. But Jesus ruins that by putting the Samaritan in the story as the hero, challenging the lawyer and everyone else in Israel to expand their view of who was a neighbor. And that's our challenge this morning as we hear from this familiar story. It's the challenge of seeing that the neighbor... uh, is viewed very differently from the man's perspective, the man who's dying in the street, who has been beaten, robbed, and, and they're half dead, and who will die unless someone comes and helps him and gets him to, to someone who can take care of him. The two passers-by, um, they don't do anything. They, they just look the other way. I'm sure they see the man. But they decide not to touch him. Either he's too unclean or it's going to slow him down or or, or just cost him money or whatever else. They decide not to stop and to help the man. But as N.T. Wright helps us understand, maybe we should see this from the perspective of the man who's laying in the street, lying in the street, half dead, thinking, well, those really weren't my neighbors. I thought they were my neighbors. They're in my own religion. They're in my own nation. They're like family. And they didn't do anything to help me. But this man that I've hated all my life, he saved my life. You see the twist? You see the need to expand our understanding of neighbor? That we're not going to live, we're not going to survive unless we do so. And that's our challenge. If we're ever truly to live as God intended, we must expand our view of neighbor. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once quipped, we make our friends, right? We do. Make our friends. 
We make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. Right? God makes our neighbors. We have to love our neighbor because he is there. Simple as that. That's what Chesterton says. He says, we must love our neighbor because he or she is there. How true that is. We are to see that we have neighbors beyond what we might think. Just like Jenny with her flat, or I'm sorry, her globe <laughs> was pointing out different nations, different places. I mean, we don't think about neighbors in Iceland. You don't, you don't say, oh, my neighbor in Iceland. But you have neighbors in Iceland. And they're not so cold anymore. <laughs> but we have neighbors there. We have neighbors all over. And we need to understand that we have neighbors beyond what we think. Who are they? I mean, we must look around and see them in other parts of our city, in our uh, other races, other socioeconomic groups, other sexual orientations, other nations and in other religions. They are our neighbors. Everywhere you look, you will see a neighbor. And we must see the many neighbors that we have. But we must also see the need that we have for our neighbors. The man in our story, half dead in the street, was cared for by someone that he would, wouldn't have considered to be a neighbor. He was a Samaritan. He wasn't a Jew. And yet his survival depended on him. And doesn't our survival depend on our neighbors, even those we may not yet know? Think of how vulnerable we are in this hostile world. I mean, would you agree this is a hostile world? Yes. It is indeed. Where we can just as easily be robbed, beaten, and left for dead. Think about how scary our world is with health crises, with trade wars, with earthquakes, with hurricanes, with terrorism and isolation, just to name a few. And if we ever needed our neighbors, it is now. Understanding our need for neighbors should lead us to treat them the way that we want to be treated. Jesus wanted the lawyer and Israel to learn to treat their neighbors as they wanted to be treated, to be good neighbors. And He told them of a Samaritan man who acted with compassion and that word, by the way, is an interesting word, compassion. The way it translates over uh, into our language, there's something that is lost there. But it, it has to do with innards, with a visceral uh, response to something. But it also ties in with sacrifices and how uh, a sacrifice would be made long ago uh, by taking the heart out of whatever is being sacrificed, right? Uh, I don't want to get into any further details with that before lunch. But if you think about that, uh, as you hear someone say, wow, she really put her heart into it, or he really put his heart into it, that's compassion. When you become the sacrifice, when you put your heart into something, you are acting based on your heart and, and, and a response that demands action. That is compassion. Compassion is not tweeting about it. Compassion is not talking about it with, with your friends or your family and saying, oh, what a poor soul out there. Compassion is when you do something about it. And our world needs more people who are willing to do something 
about the things that are going on in our world. And so he told of a Samaritan man who acted with compassion, with mercy, and sustained care. He dropped him off, didn't he? Left some money, and he said, I'll come back and pay for the rest of whatever it is you had to pay to take care of this guy. But I want him taken care of. That is sustained health care, isn't it? (laughs) Think about it. He acted with mercy, sustained care. He tells the lawyer, go and do likewise. That's a good phrase, isn't it? We are to hear those words as well. You go and do likewise, Jesus says, acting on our compassion in the same way with real actions of mercy. I came across a story about neighbors in the Middle East, and this was in the book, Jesus the Middle Eastern Storyteller, written by Gary Berg, uh, who is a professor of New Testament at Wheaton. He shares a story told to him by a theology professor who once worked in Jerusalem. The professor spoke Arabic, so he had access to the Arab Christian community there in Jerusalem. And over the course of numerous conversations, he heard the same story Uh, of a modern-day Good Samaritan. He heard this story over and over again. He says, Not long ago in Jerusalem's famed Hadass Hospital, an Israeli soldier lay dying. He had contracted AIDS as a result, uh, and as a result, no one wanted anything to do with him during this time. He was in the last stages of the disease's terrible course, and his father was a, a famous Jerusalem rabbi. Uh, and, and yet he had AIDS and still no one wanted anything to do with him. So both he and, his, and the rest of his family had disowned him uh, and, and he was condemned to die in shame. The nursing staff on his floor knew his story and carefully avoided his room. This was very much the case not only in places like Jerusalem, but here in the United States, uh, especially throughout the 80s, and even beyond when uh, this kind of um, shame was taking place uh, in families and in healthcare situations. And uh, certainly um, there are plenty of stories about this. But everyone was simply waiting for his life to expire. What a sad situation. The soldier happened to be part of a regiment that patrolled the occupied West Bank and his unit was known for its ferocity and war-fighting skills, the author says. The Palestinians living in occupation hated these troops. Still do, right? There's nothing but hatred there. They were merciless and could be cruel. Their green berets always gave them away. One evening, the soldier went into cardiac arrest uh, there in the hospital. All the usual alarms went off, but the nursing staff did not respond. Can you imagine? Just let him die. Just let him go. We're not going to respond. Even the doctors looked the other way. Yet on the floor, another man was at work, a Palestinian Christian janitor. We forget that there are Christians there, right? Our brothers and our sisters. So this Palestinian Christian janitor who knew this story as well and also knew the meaning of the emergency. Incredibly, he was a man whose village had been attacked by this soldier's unit. When the Palestinian heard the alarm and witnessed the neglect of the doctors and the nurses, his heart was filled with compassion. 
He dropped his broom, he entered the soldier's room, and attempted to resuscitate the man by giving him CPR. The scene was remarkable. A poor Palestinian man, a victim of this soldier's violence, now tried to save his enemy, while those who should have been doing this stood on the sidelines and did nothing. The author says, when you understand what it means for an enemy to love an enemy, and for the righteous to show neglect, then you will have a picture of the power of God's grace at work in a person's heart. It redefines neighbor, doesn't it? We are to work to create and to maintain a world, according to God, where good neighborliness is the norm, and where people don't rob and don't pass by those who are in need. And that is our challenge this morning. Let us pray. God, we thank You for this timeless story. It is timeless, but it is also timely as we think about our own situation in our world today. As we think about the problems as we think about the challenges, as we think about even this morning, as there are raids going on, ICE raids for asylum seekers who are here in our nation. As families are separated, as people are put behind fences, as people are denied basic necessities of humanity. Lord, what a timely story this is for us. Help us to be the neighbors. The neighbors who can care for us when we are in need. The neighbors who need our care when they are in need. We thank you for Jesus and the kind of compassion and love that he showed to all, even to us. We pray this in his name. Amen.